Good morning. Good morning. Oh, that was, that was lively. Um, it's good to be here with you all worshiping through this season. I know it is busy, but I love that we have these opportunities to come together to slow down uh, and to really celebrate and recognize God in our lives. Um, today is our, our second week of Advent and the second week of our sermon series that we've entitled Advent, The Beginnings. And um, it's my privilege to continue in this series uh, where we are looking at the four different Gospels. Because usually, especially if you've been in church for a while, sometimes the, the four Gospels can get mixed and mashed as just like big stories of Jesus. And we don't really know what each Gospel is talking about. But this series, uh, we wanted to look at the opening sections of each of the Gospels to consider the unique portrait of Christ that's presented and the nuanced message of each Gospel. And so today we're looking at the book of Mark which was actually the earliest gospel to be written around a time where there was persecution against Christians around maybe around 65 AD. And uh, it's widely held that Mark, who wrote this gospel, is John Mark. Uh, He wasn't a direct disciple of Jesus, but um, he's the Mark mentioned in Acts, who traveled with Paul and Barnabas through their first missionary journey. He was also a disciple of Peter, whose recollections of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection uh, were used in the writing of this book of the Bible. But far easier and probably far simpler to remember for for us today, Mark is the shortest gospel with 16 chapters. It's also the fastest-paced gospel. Mark jumps from story to story almost without even catching his breath event to event. Um, It's by far the least Christmassy gospel. That's the technical term. Um, Because there's no mention of the the narrative of Jesus' birth or his childhood. But this gospel is what we're looking at today, and so if you'll read along with me, I'll be reading from uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 1 to 8. And this is what it says. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God. Um, And as we look at this opening passage of Mark, um, it's significant. He begins with this sentence, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He lays out from the beginning what his goal is that this isn't just a a mere exposition of Jesus' teachings. It's not just a way to be a good person. Rather, Mark presents Jesus Christ as the gospel, the way to salvation, to right relationship with a holy and sovereign God. This is slightly different from what Matthew does, as Devlin said last week, where Matthew presents Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, tying Jesus through this genealogy that Matthew opens up, tying him to King David. You see, Mark, on the other hand, wrote to a far more Gentile or non-Jewish audience, Christians who were even facing persecution for their faith to the point of death. 
And even in this opening passage, this reference to Old Testament prophecy, it's attributed to Isaiah, but really it's not all from Isaiah. It's kind of a mix and, and, and matching kind of a situation. And it almost sounds as though Mark points to this to say all of the Old Testament prophecies and everything that you might know points to this gospel, and now I'm going to get on with it at this very fast pace. And in his gospel, Mark presents Jesus in two ways that we're going to look at today, and that's as the Son of God and as the suffering servant, one who is obedient to the will of God. And so we'll look at these two ways Mark presents Jesus fairly briefly, just how it's, it's painted, and then consider why these two understandings of Jesus are, are non-negotiably inseparable in both our understanding of the gospel and in our understanding of discipleship life as Christians. And so as we look at Jesus as the Son of God, one who comes with authority, one who is God himself, this is a special title in this gospel. It comes up when Jesus is is baptized and and God speaks to, to declare that this is my Son. Even demons and spirits affirm with their knowledge that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And at the transfiguration, it's it's echoed again. Finally, at the end of this gospel, at the the scene of the crucifixion, the centurion, the first person, the first member of humanity, recognizes Jesus at the end of his life as the Son of God. It's an important passage that speaks to who Jesus is. And John the Baptist, he echoes the idea that he himself is not the one who will bring salvation. The Old Testament prophecies um, that we looked at today point to John the Baptist to say there's going to be someone to prepare the way. John the Baptist is known as the greatest of the prophets, of being one who, who sees Christ. But he himself recognizes that what he does and invites people to, this baptism of water, one of repentance, is so different from what Christ will bring, salvation itself, which is something only God can do. And if you were to read through the the Gospel of Mark, the first half of the Gospel focuses in on Jesus' ministry, his authority, that he is indeed this Son of God, different and separate from all those who came before him. It shows him, Jesus, as, as having authority over creation, authority over even illness, authority to forgive sin, which was offensive to the religious leaders of the day, authority over even demons and death itself. This is the picture of Christ that's presented. If you've grown up in the church, this is something hopefully you're familiar with. But it's only half of the picture of what Mark presents. And that second picture is Jesus as the suffering servant, obedient to God. Jesus comes as one who will show the world who God is. And he does that through his teachings, through his words, through his actions, and all the way out to his death and resurrection. But even in his teaching, he he shows that he is faithful to God, obedient to God, and showing the character and will of the Father. And he does this through his teaching, talking about the parent-child relationship, whether it's his own with his, his uh, blood relatives, or even the parent-child relationship of others. He speaks against the Jewish religious elite for their holding to their traditions and missing the point of God's law. He redefines the law, even touching and meeting with compassion those who are considered unclean, a leper, tax collectors, sinners, Gentiles who are considered unclean. 
Jesus breaks some of these rules. He breaks the rules of, of the Sabbath that were held by plucking grain and healing people on the Sabbath. He redefines the very purpose of Sabbath. And in all this, he is remaining obedient to the call of God, the will of God, the character of God. But for all of that greatness, he came to take on the sin of the world and to die on our behalf. And in this way, he is truly our suffering servant. He even points ahead to tell his disciples that he will suffer and die. The Savior we believe in is not just a mighty figure, but he came and lived opposite to what everyone expected. And in this way, he's our suffering servant. And so why do these two pictures of Christ matter for us, both in our understanding of salvation and of discipleship? To, to kind of pull back a little bit, we worship a God who is good, who is good on his word, good on his character, cannot betray himself in his sense of justice, in his glory, in his love. And when there is sin, there needs to be atonement, and that's shown through the Old Testament. And God does this through Christ. And it matters that Jesus is indeed the Son of God because if he were just merely a man, another prophet, another teacher, another good person, his death would not have the meaning that it does. It would not be atonement. The dying, the death of a, of a good man might inspire, but the sense of atonement before a holy God makes no sense. And at the same time, pretty obviously, Jesus as suffering servant is important for our understanding of salvation because if he didn't die, there would be a no atonement. And this picture of atonement, this picture of God solving this problem of sin comes up in Genesis 3 when he promises that this will be something he takes care of. It comes up even in Genesis 22, which is a hard passage to recognize or, or sit with where Abraham is called to sacrifice his son. And at the last moment, an angel says, stop. This is not the way you will worship God by sacrificing your firstborn the way other pagan religions do to try to, to make themselves good and right. And instead, there's a ram provided to mark that God himself will solve this problem, this need for atonement. Jesus died for our sin, and that matters. It might be easy for us as Christians to move beyond that simply to say, how do I do good? How do I talk about these bigger issues like justice and love and kindness? And those are all great, but the basis and foundation of our faith is this very truth that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sin. Because you see, we don't believe um, that the center of our faith is just about being good enough. As Christians, we recognize that we are not able to live perfectly and without sin that before a holy and just God, we will fall short. We do. But the good news, as we call it, is that God is good on his word to solve this problem of sin. Through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus, the son of God and suffering servant who is obedient to God to the point of death. And so why does this matter for our sense of discipleship? Jesus, as the suffering servant, not only talks about his own suffering and death, but he warns his disciples in Mark 13 that they too will be persecuted. In Mark 6, 
there's, there's a story of Jesus sending out his disciples. And, and Mark kind of cuts away to a different story. And, and this happens throughout the Gospel of Mark. We call it the Mark, Markin sandwich, right? I don't know. I'm, I like the bagels we have. They're pretty good. I don't know if you consider that a sandwich, right? But this Markin sandwich is this thing that happens where, where there's a story or discourse that happens, and suddenly we split away to a different story that seems to have very little to do with what we were just reading, and then comes back. And what that does, it, it presents a new message that that compounds the two. It's kind of like this, where if you have a sandwich, you've got the bread, you've got the good stuff, whether you're, you're, it's meat or if you're like a vegetarian or vegan, like whatever, whatever your, your fillings are. You've got the bread, you've got the inside, and you've got another piece of bread. But when you put them all together, it's this magical food item that is different from just having bread and whatever you had inside. And what comes to my mind as I think about this is the animation, the cartoon uh, movie Ratatouille, where, where the main character, this rat chef, tries this, this strawberry and there's like this burst of pink, right? And then he has this piece of cheese and there's this other burst. And when he has them together, it's this new thing all on its own. And that's kind of what happens. So if you're reading through the Gospel of Mark and you see something that's like, this doesn't fit, how, why did we jump from one to another? There's probably something going on that Mark is trying to show us. But in Mark 6, when Jesus sends out his disciples, we jump to the story of the death of John the Baptist, who is basically beheaded with his head on a platter for standing against Herod. And then we cut back to the disciples coming back to Jesus after being sent out to do this work of ministry. And through this, Mark reminds his audience, reminds Christians of the early church, but even today, that the cost of discipleship in a world driven by greed, decadence, power, wealth, the cost of discipleship is often heavy. I'm going to read for us from Mark chapter 8, and I'm going to ask our worship team to come back. Mark chapter 8, verse 34 and 35 say this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Church, you see, through history, God's people have faced pain and persecution. They've chosen to live in beautifully countercultural ways because of their alignment with Christ. And God's people have found time and time again that when we live close to Christ, we're sustained by a hope, peace joy and love, all that are greater than what we face. All of these come from a God who himself is greater than what we face. Now, I don't say this lightly or to dismiss the difficulties that, that we face. Even before all the craziness of the pandemic and everything we're facing now acutely, even before that life was hard, And as Christians, I think it's so important for us to hold these two pictures of Jesus. Because life continues to be hard, and we often find ourselves caught and stretched in this tension. You see, for if we live as, as religious people, forgetting the truth that Jesus was persecuted, rejected, he was different from the world, rejected, that he suffered and yet was obedient, if we forget this picture of Christ, it's only natural for us to have a skewed and ultimately false picture of our faith. 
We'd be unable to understand or reconcile why we, who are called children of a sovereign God, still experience pain. But as Christ invites us to life with him, living as light in a broken world, our pain becomes an opportunity to show the love, peace, and joy that we have in God. And at the same time, if we neglect the truth that Jesus is indeed sovereign son of God, we would fall into a sense of hopelessness. Because why struggle if there's a God who isn't sovereign? Our religion would be empty. But he is indeed God with us, greater than what we face. And these two pictures of Jesus show us a rich picture of God, the salvation that we have in him, and the life we're invited to. And so as we build our lives with him, Jesus, the Son of God, our Savior, the suffering servant, we can come to him as we are, with our pains, our struggles, our wounds, our frustrations, knowing that he is in us and working through us. And there we can find that we are more deeply rooted in this eternal and very present hope, peace, joy, and love. And so I invite you to respond in prayer this morning. To recognize that we live in a society where Christ's community and compassion, the values of our church, they're not easy to live out. The world we live in demands us uh, and pressures us to earn, strive, and achieve as though our sense of value really depends on it. We live in a society where the phrase, love your enemies, seems like a tired and faded dream. We live in a time where, where hearing the word discipleship might just seem very tiring. But praise God that he's not surprised by our sin, our brokenness, and our pain. He lived in that tension of living in the world, but being obedient to God. He was indeed our suffering servant, who at the same time is the sovereign son of God, who is our ultimate So would you take a moment to, to stand, to bow your heads, whatever posture of prayer, to bring to God what's on your heart. This season is filled with so much busyness, but I love that we get to slow down and sit with Christ to recognize maybe our need for peace in, in a season, in a year, in, in life that seems so crazy and overwhelming. Come seeking a deeper sense of his hope that indeed he's at work or joy in what seems like a dark season. 